Welcome to the Unchanging Education podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Dan Clemens, and I'm going to start off talking about, um, well, just just a little bit of housekeeping, actually. Uh, First, in the last couple episodes, I've described this as uh, the the introduction uh, where I'm establishing the idea. And I'm going to sort of re- sort of reorganize this into season one. I didn't realize that the introduction of just of the, the main idea of what I'm trying to talk about and the ins and outs would take quite so much time. So what is the idea that I'm trying to establish here, just to recapitulate? Teacher versus student-centered, obviously. Um, and this is towards a more balanced discourse and a diversity of ideas at the idea level of education or at the theory philosophical level right often just referred to as pedagogy and that we need teacher and student centered tendencies assumptions um, methodologies modalities um, sort of locked in a kind of a contest with one another and that this creates a system of checks and balances and in order to do this, actually, in order to create this balance, I feel like it's necessary actually to focus on the vices of student-centeredness and the virtues of teacher-centeredness. I'm not using, um, you know, virtue and vice in a, in, a, in a Christian sense here. I'm using it in more of an Aristotelian sense, that um, pedagogy is excessively student-centered, or that we could frame this as deficiently teacher-centered. Right? And so it needs to be, there's an Aristotelian idea of the golden mean that, um, that it's sometimes also just paraphrased as, as like a middle path or a middle way, not to be confused with, the, with Eastern philosophy, that on either extreme you could have virtue and vice or excess and deficiency that are just, you know, that, that are basically too far to one side. And sometimes it's represented in a chart. And... Um, to find the mean, like the, a middle point in between excess of, of doing something too much and deficiency of not doing something enough lies a, a sort of a preferable path. It's also hard even to talk about the problems uh, so orthodox or so you could say dominated or captured by one ideology education is or by one single story. So I'll also look ahead here um, after whatever this this introduction to the idea, this season one, um, future seasons will be focused on what we'd consider a lit review, a, a review of the literature or just having looked at a lot of largely unexamined, uh, I think, or, or um, you know, texts, ideas, thinkers about education that are um, you know, illuminating and, and important, but are not really seriously considered. And that's just going to lead us deeper into uh, an understanding of the problem and, and possible solutions. Okay, so just picking up from, from, from last time, um, again, continuing to find and explore all the different ways that we can distinguish teacher-centered from student-centered. And of, of course, even though the idea is to kind of rebalance these things or, or to kind of create 
I mean, uh, to say that we want a harmony between them is maybe, you know, too optimistic. But again, more of a, I guess you could call it a dialectic as well. But anyway, just to have enough space, to have enough air, so to speak, for both of these ideas to breathe. So I was talking about esteem. And so under a, a teacher-centered um, disposition, we could think that we need a, a baseline of social esteem um, that ultimately comes from other people that is rooted in some sense of um, of real action, right? Doing something good and, um, you know, or, or being able to, to do something you couldn't do before or, or improving or, or whatever it might be. And that this can lead to an earned sense of self-esteem. And then that this maps onto a sense that, you know, through education, someone comes to, to learn about the world, to know the world. I mean, not, not in a complete way, uh, certainly. But that you know, you, you learn about the world, you know about the world, in order to find your place in it. So we think about, well, what are the goals of education? And we absolutely have to think about, well, what do we imagine like who is our exemplary gradu graduate right like the the at the end of education what does that student look like or sound like and in this sense we're looking at probably someone who's knowledgeable and well adjusted right someone who knows about the world and can find a, a meaningful place within the world contrast this to student-centeredness, which I argue, um, you know, inverts this esteem uh, pair, that we need uh, a sort of a fundamental baseline of self-esteem that is established through, you know, praise and reward. And that only, only from this is any kind of uh, achievement or, or earning any kind of social esteem going to be possible. And of course, I think that really, again, as I keep coming back to, we obviously there's a very complex relationship between these things. And ultimately, TVSE, we need both. We need these two different ideas competing with one another. Um, but this student-centered um, approach, I think, maps onto you know a, a very different relationship between the self and the world. That there's an emphasis uh, on identity, that you have to know yourself rather than know about the, about the world and activism that it's not a matter of finding a place in the world but a matter of fixing the world okay so instead of like knowledgeable and well-adjusted um there's this this emphasis on identity and activism so a teacher-centered um countermeasure would certainly de-emphasize uh, an excessive focus on the individual self and in terms of activism to fix the world, I think a teacher-centered uh, approach would emphasize gratitude or appreciation for, for what is and for what we have. Going a step further, I think in a, in a teacher-centered mode, we'd also problematize this, this tendency to want to fix the world with activism just by, by pressing it, right? I mean, it's, it's easy just to kind of you know, fan the flames uh, of passion that young people have to want to, you know, do good, big, impressive things. But 
there's a, a definition of, of, of what a philosopher is. Of course, there are many, but one of them is that well, a philosopher has a problem for every solution, and that this is, I mean, this is an intellectual process. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna make things better. How? Well, I'm gonna do this. Okay. Will that really make things better? Are there unintended consequences? So this problem for every solution, again, I, I mean, I think I recognize a, a conservative or a conservational tendency in it, right? That you know, we all want to make things better, but the real trick is to is what we consider a net gain, right? Um, it's very easy to make one thing better by neglecting something else, and then that thing becomes worse. And in the end, you know, change is, in a way, perhaps a very illuminating phrase here. That, well, sure, I mean, strangely, I think uh, perhaps counterintuitively to a lot of listeners, it's really, really easy to change things. It's extremely hard to change things for the better. Um, because change just means different, and it could certainly mean worse. Okay. So I think um, coming back to this, I just thinking about curriculum again, um, in terms of what is like on paper, um, in in the most general sense, what are the things that we want students to learn or to kind of come away with. And I think that in many ways, uh, the so-called curricular cabinets have been emptied out, that they're kind of bare, and they need to be refurnished. Because a lot of what we considered maybe to be essential um, have kind of been, again, questioned, cast into doubt, problematized, de-emphasized. Because um, the old traditional conservative classic way um, both the, the methods of direct instruction, but also the knowledge curriculum, uh, have uh, almost seemed to have a, well, under a student-centered vision, they, there's just a really a bad association with these, right? that they're in service to a particular culture, which is in a way bad. And that, uh, you know, inheriting that culture must also be bad. And... So, I think for, for, for teacher-centeredness, there is this imperative to produce knowledgeable graduates. Again, I mentioned you know knowledgeable and well-adjusted. And I think that that's what we should be thinking of with the knowledge curriculum. I think one follows from the other pretty obviously. So, for a teacher-centered modality, your inherited culture, you, you try to comprehend at first at least, and then to understand the world of what is. And that the self is understood in relation to the world, not um, not before, or that's a bit complicated. But really, how primary or how essential is the the individual self? And again, for student centeredness, I think it's it's it would be primary because of its therapeutic commitments. And teacher centeredness, it, it wouldn't be right knowing about the world and knowing about how you as an individual can uh, fit in relation to the world, even uh, how you can be of service to the world, right? A world full of people that need things and what can you provide to the world? 
And it's almost like a shortcut to thinking, well, the world needs, you know, change. It needs, you know, radical revolutionaries. Um, but I think in some ways that's exaggerated or maybe even is a kind of a false need. So if you're dissatisfied with the world or with yourself, um, if you're dissatisfied with the world that yourself inhabits or the self uh, as being in the world, then on the basis of understanding, you should seek to improve one or the other, or maybe both. So again, this is more vaguely philosophical, but in the relationship between the self and the world, um, and when we experience dissatisfaction, it's, it's never clear whether, it's not always clear whether or not something has to change, if an adjustment can be made, if we need to change to better fit into the world, or to what extent are real changes in the world possible to you know better suit the flourishing of, of human beings. But I think that too often, you know, there is uh, the intellectual rigor is increasingly being siphoned off from this um, healthy and natural tendency to want to change things. Right? Someone says they want to, they want change. Well, what, what, what do you want to change? The system. Well, okay. I mean, what, what about it? Well, I mean, what's what's wrong with it? Um, and the answer is everything. You know, it just it has to go, which sounds very. You know, it just it obviously it sounds radical and revolutionary. Of course, it is. But that it reflects itself strangely a lack of reflection, and we might go so far as to say that only unknowledgeable people could think like this. Right? I, sometimes, in thinking about this problem, the the term ignoramus is used, which I think you know I, it sounds like a very charged word, but I, I don't really think that it has to be. Um, so, but. If we, if there's a gap in producing, you know, knowledgeable people, again, who are seeking to find a place in the world and to to to, to adjust and to fit with the world, um, then we're going to increase this this tendency towards you know change and activism on both levels, right? I mean, people with knowledge will be more more likely to have again a, a gratitude or an appreciation for the freedoms that we have and how these freedoms or liberties were you know wrestled from the from the hands i guess of you know of of reality from nature throughout earlier human societies and throughout the the progression of civilization i mean it's certainly easy to say that progress is itself a you know an illusion so by by producing unknowledgeable students, um, we we feed this problem in one way, and yet not only are they not knowledgeable, but they're also incentivized or they're encouraged in their activism. So not only are they more likely to be inclined towards activism, and at least, I mean, in at least. In both ways, in at least two different ways. Mm -hmm. 
So thinking again to this, this student-centered idea, when I'm talking about change or activism, um, what I'm also talking about is this tendency to want to, we, we could rephrase this as to reimagine in order to transform, reimagining things to transform them. And why does everything need to be reimagined and transformed? Well, because this, this world is basically bad in that it can and must be perfected in some sense. I think that these are some of the underlying assumptions. But teacher-centeredness, instead of reimagining and transform, transforming and assuming that things are basically bad and that they can be, they can be perfected, that teacher-centeredness, again, would push back and saying that, well, we have to stop thinking of words like stable, uh, even static or status quo as being, you know, bad words or phrases. And strangely, it almost takes more courage to like defend culture and to say of the way that things are, that they're basically good, but they're also all too human and that they're not only imperfect, but they're imperfectible, that they cannot be made perfect. They certainly aren't as good as they could be, of course. But we also have to consider how bad they could be, how much worse they could be. And that we have to fight that battle on both fronts if we're really being... If we're, if we're going to engage in sophisticated thinking, that, you know, this war on both fronts is, you know, fighting for the improvements ahead of us, but also fighting back like the, the risk or the threat of real regression, you know, decay and chaos uh, behind us. That it is simplistic to say that the story of humanity is just the story of progress and things, you know, always getting better. Um, but I, I think in the current climate, it's much easier to say, well, no, that's all just, you know, an illusion. It's false. It's a myth. I think that, I mean, of course, there's truth to it. And perhaps even if there isn't truth to it, it might be something like a noble fiction that we, if we continue to act and operate as though we're able to serve some, you know, transcendent kind of progress, then maybe our actions will somehow be ennobled in the, in the historical present. So thinking back again, teachers student centeredness I think and this might sound somewhat radical but it's all too easy for education particularly in my view this current dominating student-centered mode to fail right to, to fail students and to fail at society because these students fail to gain knowledge they don't become knowledgeable they don't become well-adjusted they don't become healthy productive upstanding citizens so it's easy for education to fail and have these students fail to gain knowledge, let alone wisdom. And then to retroactively declare that, well, it's not really that good to be knowledgeable anyway. It's not really important to be well-adjusted anyway. For example, um, we could say that those, those ideas are themselves oppressive in some way.
there's an extent to which we have to, you know, meet this with, you know, counter arguments, but there's also a degree to which we simply cannot indulge this decadence, this dereliction of duty, because of the risk that it poses to culture and civilization. Okay. So, in teacher-centeredness, it seems that real worldly knowledge is the domain and that this aligns with transmitting culture and is connected to the past and so it is more stable right i mean teacher centeredness is more stable because it it tries to be i mean that that's an active emphasis and the individual person's own identity is left to them and to the private domain okay they can give a public private distinction that it's quite it's pronounced in teacher-centeredness whereas again in teacher-centeredness with its student-centeredness with its therapeutic emphasis uh, the public-private distinction is blurred and your identity you know who you are is is uh, becomes a major focal point of the public domain and even what even the even the distinction of public and private again becomes blurred So, teacher-centeredness will say to students that really this isn't really about you, your 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 own identity. Again, that's private. That's not my business, and that this what we're what we're trying to achieve in the education situation is for you to inherit and to learn all about the past, and to take your place in the world. In the in, in a world that is, as I hinted at before, in a world that is enchanted, a big, beautiful, wide, wild world. Not just the world of the present, but also the worlds that are open up, for example, through, through history and through mathematics. So against this idea of inheriting and learning all about the past, a, a student-centered approach would reject the past. And instead of taking your place in the world that it's it's better to try to remake or to transform the world so in student center of course student centeredness and teacher centeredness are always seemingly inversions of one another and i'm i mean i'm even i'm even further emphasizing trying to cast that the distinction into further relief in student centeredness there's an inversion there's a focus on personal identity my knowledge sorry, self-knowledge or my truth type rhetoric. And this becomes institutionalized in a therapeutic culture that does not value transmission because the individual person is, in a sense, its own universe. And any, any resultant or even any happenstance dysfunctional relation to the world is increasingly interpreted as something wrong with the world and this and, and then almost retroactively this idea of world change and, and the need for it is further reinforced right so if if you you don't help young people to you know adjust and fit into a world that's working and so that and so they don't adjust or fit into the world and this almost comes to justify the ideas that well like there's all these problems with the world yet 
if, for example, and this is, you know, being a bit too simplistic, but if under a teacher-centered mode, we helped people to become knowledgeable, well-adjusted, again, productive, healthy citizens, then they would be less inclined to experience dysfunction um, in their relationship as a self to the world. And thus, you know, they wouldn't come to see that all these ideas about, you know, the, this bad world needs to change. Um, they would be much more likely to see that as as unrealistic. But if we're telling them that the world is bad and we're not preparing them to take a place in it, and then they don't find a place in it, then they'll see that the world is bad. And so more and more culture is being pushed out, breaking from the past and focusing on present feelings. Again, there's also a distinction between feelings and facts that it's it's tempting to say that teacher-centered is, is more focused on facts, whereas student-centered is more focused on feelings. I, I think that there's some truth to that. But this the, there, there's an ideology animating student-centeredness that focuses on a sublime future, right? And that we need, education needs to create a changing person towards a changed world. And change, change, change. It's all in flux, right? We're, we're, we're reimagining and transforming and everything is in a, in a state of flux. Again, uh, versus a, a teacher-centered mode that would not assume that flux is good. It would assume that stability is good. And, uh, of course, you know, this makes us think of Marx. In Marxian terms, to create a new type of human being is needed for the creation of a new type of society in, in a different economy. So I've been discussing and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to indicate that there's a general spirit here to revive the duality, right? The balance or the contest that I call TVSC, teacher versus student centered, both existing together. But the best way to do it is to make a full-throated defense of teacher-centeredness while attacking student-centeredness. So it might, again, it, I addressed this at the outset, but it may seem like I want, instead of, you know, student-centered dominance, that I want to, you know, elide student-centeredness and I want to, you know, erect a, a sort of a super-dominant teacher-centered way. And it isn't. I just want to reiterate that this is rhetorical, right? Um, that the, that it's it's a matter of making a, making the case in a full-throated way, and that this is the best way to cast doubt and promote skepticism and to make a dent in the dominant discourse. So I just want to make sure that that is clear. Just as a reminder, I know that there are some redundancies going through this uh, first season, this introduction to the idea. But I hope that you'll forgive me for that. Okay, continuing on. There are different kinds of mistakes and different levels of responsibility to remedy them. As a member of a field or discipline, domain of knowledge and practice that has problems and all do, one ought to identify and address problems, excesses and or deficiencies. While these terms will be explained in full later, the problem I will address is the domination of so-called student-centered SC over teacher-centered TC pedagogy. 
For now, I want to suggest that this dominance of the former over the latter occurs not because of the justifiable superiority of its assumptions, aims, efforts, or efficacy, but rather because of its seductive appeal in the way it sells or markets itself, and also how it propagandized its ideological opponent. Student-centeredness has propagandized teacher-centeredness into oblivion. TC is mischaracterized as bad, boring, ineffective, and cruel. Bad in two ways. Bad in terms of its cruelties, normatively, and descriptively bad in terms of its ineffectiveness. Yet the tendency within the field to passively accept and even parrot this idea is due to a rhetorical pressure in wanting to sound and look good and to avoid sounding and looking bad, as we all do. But SC emerges not through force of argument or evidence, but by instantiating itself as the correct attitude and the only acceptable opinion. It maintains its monopolistic grip by preempting competition, not by triumphing over it in a fair and principled marketplace of ideas. And by shame. Will you join the doubly, normatively and descriptively good, teachers who are effective and caring, or not? And when the marketplace of ideas dries up in this way, neither ideas, nor teachers, nor students flourish, because they are all interconnected. A monopoly, an orthodoxy in the field, can come to have a disabling effect, and um, metaphorically speaking, to thicken the blood of education, a sickness, a weakening and enfeebling, lethargic and decadent, results of ideological inbreeding or incest of ideas where viewpoint diversity is heretical. One way to inject or transfuse healthfulness into education and indirectly into society is through the reinstantiation of viewpoint diversity, robust competition, a bustling marketplace that not only tolerates, but invites and welcomes critique and alternatives. Noting again, I haven't lately explained these so-called terms, SC and TC, in terms of pedagogy. Let me first just use these terms to establish a problem-solution dyad. The problem is the death of what I call TVSC, teacher versus student-centered ideas, again, in a healthy contest of creative tension that can check and balance excesses and keep one another honest at the level of theory. And at the level of practice, that, co that, that coexists as modes that the adept teacher can shift between. Right. So this TVSC does exist at the level of practice, which is why the teaching practice is not as bad as the landscape of pedagogy, I argue. There are still lots of great teachers doing lots of great work. The ideological purity of student-centeredness over teacher-centeredness, I'm writing this here as SC and then with the, the greater than, the Pac-Man would rather eat student-centered over TC. The ideological purity of SC over TC is, in my view, the fundamental problem in education today. Hundreds of years ago, we, I argue, or I believe, we had this open contest in a variety of forms, in differing terms. But long ago, it may be true that 
SC was supplementary or secondary in relation to TC. Seen TC being the older, more traditional, more conservative form. And about 100 years ago, did this reverse, where TC became supplementary and secondary. And now, only within the last 100 years, has the duality collapsed entirely into, as aforementioned, monopoly or orthodoxy, where SC dominates and elides TC. So what is the solution? While any solution will be premature at this stage, I'll suggest it is to recapture a complementarity between the two. As a proximal goal, to resurrect TC into its supplementary role, and thus to renew a lost but important thread in the history of educational philosophy in order to resume this healthy creative tension, which I believe is the best way to revitalize education in our time. But for now, we need to stay focused on the problem as I see it. I think teachers, teachers work harder now than ever before. Despite teachers working maniacally, there is an overwhelming sense within the field by practitioners, though experts may not share this sense, that education isn't working or isn't working well. I also think that we cannot fault kids today. I'm also ambivalent as to technology. Is it too much technology, consumption, screen time, devices, social media, and gaming outside of school? Or is it a lack of technology in the 21st century classroom? Is it is, it, is the problem too much or too little technology? Um, again, it's not, it's not a major concern of mine. I think all of these are interesting points, but I also suspect they're all dead ends, at least philosophically. My interest in education is not focused on teachers or kids or tech. It is ideas. So, as always, I invite you, dear listener, to continue to follow along as, as we continue. Okay. So I've been following something like, a, I think, a 40 or 50 minute type episode length um, yeah, I'm getting closer to the hour mark in my episode, so I think that's a that's a good benchmark. So I've got plenty of time here. I'm going to continue on here. Okay. Education. In my lifetime, the narrative surrounding education was one of deficit, that not enough was being done to educate. Interestingly, this has changed somewhat, that a new narrative surrounding excess has emerged that educators are doing too much, namely acting too explicitly politically. I think it's interesting to emphasize this, uh, doing too little versus doing too much. I mean, when in my lifetime, when in, have, have we heard critics say, teachers are doing way too much? I don't think that that critique has ever been made against teachers. I mean, the, the, the critique around teachers was always that they weren't doing enough. They weren't doing enough to teach 
ex student, my student, or students in general about this or that. Where a, a kind of a narrative that teachers are lazy, I think, is is common. It's it's just in it's in our culture. Of course, it's just in our culture to critique and complain. You know, lots of things. But I don't think I don't even know if there have ever been historical precedents where this has changed where the main critique is that teachers are doing too much not too little it, it might not sound like a very important point but it's it's i'm just saying it's a very strange moment that we find ourselves at the present and yes it is the political right saying this about the left that education is basically is by and large captured by leftism and student-centeredness um, and so if you are you know I mean if you're not listening you probably won't hear this critique that um, you know that we actually want to push back on what teachers are doing and to pull our kids back away from them them to, to some extent that there's a growing concern um, not that they're not teaching enough of the right things in the right ways. Again, this this deficit critique, but there's an, an increased sense that that what they're doing is in in that that we would critique it based on the terms of its excess. And I think also very interesting is that a generation ago it was school prayer, right? Um, that that maybe that's the last. Maybe that maybe that's the one example I can think of in terms of an excess based critique of education, right? That we want um, that the teachers are doing too much, as if there's some sort of like as if you know prayer is self same of some sort of religious indoctrination. So I think that's the last and best example of the phenomenon that I'm that I'm talking about. That the left wanted to police prayer as excess for removal and the entirety of the discourse in between i'm saying was focused on deficiency of whatsoever education isn't doing enough of again with with very very few rare examples of things it's doing too much of i guess there have been some voices saying that there is too much math um in k-12 but uh again i am not a math educator i can't speak to that so from literacy and numeracy to farming and civics uh again everyone has their own idea it seems of what education should be doing more of why aren't we doing this why aren't kids learning about that so uh, one idea here in terms of pushing back against student-centeredness and trying to advance this you know teacher-centered resurgence is that we need to remove a new different kind of prayer actually to reattain a truly secular system while both tendencies always exist one may tend to predominate what else do we want in our schools everyone has an opinion but the newer and perhaps more interesting question is what do we now want out of our schools for example, there's been a push for more civics for about 50 years. But in the past year, many critics would be appeased if we simply ceased to set students' minds against their own countries. That where we are is bad or guilty. 
These examples are chosen for convenience to illustrate the competing impulses. We need to add civics contra deficit, where people know little about their own nation, too. No, we need to stop promoting sort of a, a national loathing contra excess, where the only things that kids know about their own nation is that it is irredeemably evil. The established or de facto impetus to add something new to education based on perceived deficit versus an emergent one to remove some extant excess from it. So I think I, I'm going to try to tie this back to TVSC. Tying this back to TVSC, that it's actually with the school prayer, setting that example aside, and maybe I'll, I'll try to come back to that, um, that a student-centered model is very much based on, again, this, this very utopian vision of education that it, it can kind of do anything. So, you know, we need to keep adding in and piling on more things for education to do because there are certain important things that education isn't doing. And so anything that's deemed important is just thrown under the umbrella of education. Therapeutics being the big obvious one, right, of, of adding things in. And so I think that um, under a student-centered vision, education is seen as something that can that can handle much more that it can almost be overloaded and it can handle any burden it's not totally clear why but that seems to be the case whereas the teacher-centered critique is coming in again with the opposite in terms of i mean you hear things like back to basics um which you know, may not be exactly what it sounds like and it's sort of you know political and very kind of specific in particular in terms of policy um, but there is an example, and it certainly relates to, to you know my whole thesis about unchanging education. That teacher-centeredness would want to, in a way, scale back and simplify. Um, scale back and simplify. Yeah. To 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 think about to think not in terms of what can we add into education that is important and needed that isn't there right now. And it instead would focus on, well, what is already there that is not truly essential that can be removed? And so it's it requires a lot of like discipline and focus and also a willingness to stand up against critics who are saying, like, you know, you're removing that. You don't think that's important. And yeah, it's um it's it's but if it's the difficult and unpopular thing to do, then it's certainly something that we we can't ignore just based on those grounds. Put simply, we've all heard for a long time some claim that we should be teaching this X in Y school. And now increasingly we hear a different voice. We need to get that out of schools. Again, let's not pretend that getting something out of schools is totally novel. I mean, certainly in our lifetime, thinking probably really in terms of the 90s, this would be ma major, getting sex and drugs and violence or weapons out of school, 
right? That they would all be seen as having, you know, excessive levels. And so, you know, removing the excess. And again, as I've, as I've indicated, the most successful example of any removal in our lifetimes is prayer. I don't know if, if anybody, despite incredible efforts, has really succeeded much in getting sex and drugs and violence or weapons out of schools, but prayer seems to be the one that worked, that it was you know, identified as an excess and sort of slated for removal and actually successfully was. There's an important difference here that we usually talk about adding new initiatives without considering the educational economy. And I don't really mean economy in terms of money, I mean it in terms of a in terms of a system that, you know, certainly has to be thought of in terms of opportunity costs. Anything we add in without increasing the school day, the week or the year, entails a subtraction that goes undiscussed, probably due to vague notions about efficiency. So there's a lot of talk about adding without subtracting, and this bloats education. Yet this other approach has the advantage of simplicity, that you can simply remove something without any other attendant consideration of what else to add in. Because simplifying often improves, while complicating often does not. So to my mind, any, we should start teaching kids this is inherently more dubious than any we should stop teaching kids why. Again, because the former things that we should start of an, an addition to me necessitates an abstraction. Uh, sorry, necessitates a subtraction. If you want to add in something new, you have to take something out, right? You have to be you know, willing to do that. And I'm talking about making cuts, but not making cuts in terms of money, just making cuts in terms of basically some, some form of trimming the curriculum, right? We need kids to start learning about this new thing. Okay, so what, what's the good thing we're pushing out? Nothing. We're just going to keep adding in more stuff. That, that's, in some ways, possibly the worst course that we could take. But the latter idea here of things that we can start to remove, things that are not really needed, not really essential, you can subtract something, you can remove something without needing to require to add something new, right? It just leaves more time and space for the other things that are already there, right? You don't say, well, we need, to, we need to get this out of schools. You don't need to consider, well, what are you going to add in in its place, right? It's not an attendant necessity. But again, in the education, in the... In the educational economy, if you want to add in something new, you have to be willing to talk about what you want to take out. So I mentioned vague notions about efficiency. So let me talk about this. Um, I think that there, there, there's, a, there's a really big problem here in that thinking about... Well, all we need to do is just make things more efficient and that we can do this with new techniques, right? That all we need are like some form of like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a corporate, you know, business model, right? It's, it's managerial thinking, right? We can keep adding in new things and not have to have conversations about what to take out simply by making things more efficient, 
um, where this is probably most like another level of the analysis is that well how can we have um, bigger classrooms right how can one teacher teach you know a large classroom would probably be considered you know 30 or 40 whereas you know like 15 to 25 I think would be considered very you know manageable so how can we have these huge classes I mean and, and not have this loss because something that especially parents want is you know like individual instruction like one-on-one -on -one time and actually whenever people ask me about you know, like younger people are talking about universities one thing I always suggest that they look into um, is the student faculty ratio right it is an important thing but in 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 k-12 education there is this idea that well like just through like new and better ways of teaching and you know you just basically new ideas and jargon that start to emerge that are in many ways they often seem very fanciful and unrealistic right so how can if i'm teaching like an overcrowded classroom right versus you know a, a small group of students or even just one person individually right one-on-one -on -one tutoring um how can i have the same you know if effectiveness efficiency uh efficacy and well like the educationalists like the experts this like the pedagogues who have either drank the kool-aid or at least pretend to they'll talk about things like universal design and that it, anyway it's all predicated on the idea that you know just if you change the way that you teach you can have the same effectiveness with with a small group that's really individualized and focused or, or, or tailored to the particularities of of uh, of one student so in order to really fully understand this idea i have to state you know for your benefit but one of the the perhaps yeah one of a small number of really fundamental truths in education that that this new age thinking seems to just ignore is that tutoring like one-on-one -on -one teaching is the most effective but it's also the least efficient where classroom teaching um is the most efficient right because you've got one teacher teaching lots of people right so it's much much more efficient but it's the least effective and so how do we realistically balance being really effective as as it's easier to be i think with a with a smaller group and still being very efficient um which is certainly like the you know the, the classroom model and there is this i mean this almost goes beyond teacher and student-centered um it just because it isn't really philosophical in any way like i said it's this it's like this this corporate you know, managerial type thing and uh anyway a lot of new ideas in education are being sold as if this problem can be solved i think it's probably ultimately student-centered though because again it's just just because it's it seems utopian in a sense that you know that through advances in 
educational, basically through pedagogy, through the magic of pedagogy, we can have all of the efficiency of, you know, one-on-one -on -one attention, all the efficacy of one-on-one -on -one teaching, tutoring, and, you know, combine that. And so you basically, you have the learning gains with the group are just as strong as they would be if you spent that time just with all of them one-on-one -on -one and individually. And again, uh, to me, this is probably, uh, it's, it's somewhat distinct from the TVSC problem, but it isn't, it's, it's, it's an outgrowth. It's just a symptom of, 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 of a field, of a discipline in decay that is not serious, is not sophisticated. Like, like where all it would take is a little bit of like pressing or, or just to ask, you know, a, a really smart, thoughtful question, right? That, well, like, what is the breaking point? Where does this break down, right? Um, I realize I'm, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit here with the, the particulars of actual in-classroom teaching. Um, but, of course, there have to be limitations in wh where would this actually break down? Like, you know, can I really teach 500 students just as well and they would, you know, gain just as much as if I was just teaching one? Well, of course, obviously not. Uh, but again, there is this really frankly, I mean, to, to be colloquial here, there is this really weird, almost creepy, silent thing in, in education where people just, like too many, I think, teachers just are just passing the time in these kinds of, you know, in, um, in, in the education schools and in, um, you know, in PD and professional development that there's almost like this, you know, really prevalent, sense that this is just bs unrealistic it's a waste of time it's not going to help me to be a better teacher at all and yet i'm also not going to object to it at all right um it's almost like sorry it's a to risk the phrase of a, of a silent majority but again i think that this goes back to the the distinction between theory and practice in education pedagogy theory is completely dominated by student-centered and what here what I'm characterizing is like new age and and even this uh, this onset of uh, sort of like I don't know whether I, whether it should be considered neoliberal or neoconservative um, but again this 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 again this corporate management type thinking like basically all these completely new ideas teachers in their real teaching practice tend just to ignore them and that that is why the teaching like the state of teaching practice is still i think quite strong because it indirectly or unwittingly reflects this balance between teacher and student-centered approaches that that blend exists in teaching practice but not in pedagogy pedagogy is teaching theory So maybe I will wrap up here for for today. Um, I know this has been a little bit of kind of an uneven podcast with you know periods of knowing exactly what I wanted to say and then a lot of just 
you know, some some uh, riffing and improvising and trying again. Frankly, I'll, I'll I'll admit struggling to articulate some of the problems that exist. Um, but if it was easy to to outline the problems and to and to consider possible solutions, then there wouldn't really be much of a need for this whole project anyway. So, as the kids say, the struggle is real. All right, so we'll pick this up again in uh, in a couple of days. I think I'm doing every you know every two or three days doing something like another hour, and to be continued. Okay, thank you.